Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. This is Jim Donovan. The time is 10 a.m. and I'm recording from some Vatican safe house outside Los Angeles. I was out on one of our routine farm aid calls. Somebody on the California-Mexican border suspected a chupacabra was eating his goats. Turned out to just be some idiot teenagers pulling a prank. While I was out, Father Smith, from the succubus case, called me. He seemed agitated, which I was not happy about. The father struck me as a level-headed sort, so hearing him unnerved by something could only mean bad news. Mr. Donovan, it's come to our attention that several fresh graves in Forest Lawn Cemetery have been desecrated. These are all in graves that are no more than a week old. Oh, you mean like Igor from Young Frankenstein? I replied. Sure, he said. That's definitely a movie. We suspect a ghoul has been disturbing the sleep of the deceased, rather than some mortal necromancer. Either way, we will pay you handsomely to investigate, or your next of kin, should you fall. I chuckled inwardly at this. What the priest didn't know couldn't hurt me. However, audibly, I said, Why didn't you just send in some of the Swiss Guard? Internal issues aside, because our analysts have reason to suspect the late Mr. Hawkwood's reach to stretch beyond the grave in this particular case. As I understand it, you were the reason he met his maker, and so I thought you'd like the chance to settle things personally, as well as the fact that your exposure to his particular type of magic might give you an edge in any sort of confrontation with one of his creations. At the name Hawkwood... I got very quiet. I pulled over to the side of the highway. A sudden shot of adrenaline coursed through my body, and I started shaking with anger. I had put him in the grave, but his memory was by no means dead. Yeah, I managed to grunt out. I'll take care of it. I knew you would, the father said with a slightly more compassionate tone. Be careful, my son. He hung up. This was it. Finally, I had the clue I've been searching for. Control, I haven't been entirely forthcoming for the last few years. Nigel Hawkwood was a tangible threat a couple years ago. He was the most powerful necromancer in the Western Hemisphere. But, I don't know, he's kind of like this upstart guy from London who's always trying to prove something. I don't know his story. Maybe Dad didn't hug him enough when he was a kid. Anyway, this is all in my official report. It's public knowledge as is the fact that he drove my brother to suicide. According to Hawkwood's diary, which I confiscated from his corpse after I shot him, he was researching ways to bridge the gap between life and death by utilizing the bond twins have with each other. So he put out feelers, trying to find twins who were just desperate enough to be lured by his lies of power and wealth. My brother was young and eager at the time. Essentially, he was stupid. This provided the perfect test subject for Hawkwood. He began feeding my brother drugs and then pumped him full of more and more cocaine and heroin. He used magic to enhance each trip. 
make it more addictive, make it more suggestible. Now, I didn't know any of this at the time. My brother had just stopped talking for a little while. I did not know what he was going through. He just fell off the face of the earth for a couple of weeks. Then I got a call. He was desperate. He was scared. He asked me to give him a reason to keep fighting. I don't know what he was fighting at the time. To stay alive. He asked me to give him a reason to stay alive. I had no inkling of warning this was coming. My brother was never depressed. He was never suicidal. He didn't have any mental diseases leading up to this. So, without any prep, I kept repeating the same tired platitudes over and over again. You've got so much to live for. We all love you. You know the routine. The last thing I said to him was, Please, don't do this. And then I heard the gunshot. And a low laughter. And then the phone disconnected. From that day on, I started hearing things. I'd wake up at 3 a.m. to hear my brother asking me to kill him. I'd see it, the motions, not as I remembered him, but as he was then at the moment. It was more than just a twisted memory, but the very thing thrown into my face, always at 3 a.m. on the dot. And if I couldn't sleep that night, the voice would wait until I finally did sleep, and it would wake me again after a few hours of restless slumber. Two weeks after my brother's suicide, I entered my apartment to find Hawkwood sitting in my desk chair. He had the soul stone out. It was glowing. He asked me, Do you miss your brother? Would you like to see him? I didn't have a firearm at the time, but I did have a baseball bat right next to my front door. I went to brandish it, smack him across his stupid British face. But he disappeared in a puff of smoke, like eggs burning in the pan. In my head, I heard his voice speak to me. Don't worry, I'll help you find him. One thing Hawkwood didn't expect, though, I got drunk that day. My eyes relaxed, and for the first time I saw into the Verimvisio. I was overwhelmed by the flood of information that assailed me. It was like a man dying of thirst, getting a mouthful from a fire hose. In all of that, I saw the past. I saw Hawkwood standing in my apartment. Before I knew who he was, that first time in the Visio was when I learned his name. There was no written word. I didn't hear it. I just looked at him, standing there, and then sitting in my chair. And I knew him. Just knew him. Since I had no idea what I was doing, I was made to wade through Hawkwood's past and his present, even his address and favorite brand of socks. Whatever I saw of his life, it didn't include the moment he sold his soul, and whenever the powers of night and darkness were strongest around him. I still wound up forgetting most of the details, or just so much of it. But what was clear, through the visio, I caught a glimpse of his immediate future. I don't understand why these events caused me to cross to the veil and peek in. That first time was raw and unfiltered. And it was 3 a.m. And I was drunk to the point I was lying on the floor and counting the ticks of an analog clock. I was using an empty bottle of scotch as a pillow. I barely remember it until the very moment my eyes broke through. I knew he'd be at the bar that night. I knew it, like I knew he had forced my brother to kill himself for some sort of perverse necromantic experiment. I knew it, like I knew my brother wasn't totally dead, but his soul was being used to create the very soul stone that I now use. His mind and body, however, host a ghoul. Who he was, 
was altered by Hawkwood's magics. After I tracked Hawkwood down and killed him in a back alley, I took the soul stone from him, went back to his apartment, and moved my ghoul brother to the garage I have attached to my apartment. It's private, no one goes inside, and I'm able to keep my brother alive, if weak, through the various small animals I feed to him. The cat population in our neighborhood has shrunk drastically since my brother came to live with me. So, there it is, Control. All the cards on the table. I was terrified that my brother had escaped the garage while I had been on assignment. I'd covered the interior of that garage with ancient sigils and glyphs, circles of copper and iron, and as far as I know, he has never been able to escape. But, <laughs> there's a first time for everything. I poured all the extra speed I could into my poor, beaten-up car. She chugged steadily along, coming up the northbound I-5. I barreled past as fast as traffic would allow me, and drove into my driveway two hours after Father Smith first called me. I walked up to the garage and reached out with the Visio. My traps and sigils hadn't been broken, and there was no visible damage on the structure of the garage. I walked up to the door and used the Visio to shield my eyes from the glamour I had placed on the property. To the average passerby, the garage would look filled to the brim with old magazines, ratty clothes, and weird boxes filled with interesting rocks, like a horror's paradise. However, with the glamorous effects muted, I could see the dark, dim, totally empty garage and my brother's withered ghoul body in one corner. I breathed a sigh of relief. I wasn't responsible. This time, there was still a chance he could break my sigils and begin a terror spree. I needed to find a cure for him, and fast. It was possible this new ghoul could hold the key, especially if it was indeed one of Hawkwood's experiments. I went inside my apartment, leaving my brother to his dark, solitary exile. I consulted Hawkwood's diary. Look, I... Okay, when I first got the diary, I was really confused. I thought Hawkwood was just a lonely, pathetic loser who spent all his time binging and reviewing old kids' shows. He had journal entries about My Little Pony, Thundercats, and Jim and the Holograms. <laughs> I should have known. Each show was its own unique cipher, and one needed an intimate knowledge of each show to fully unlock it. I haven't had the time to delve deep into three different insipid cartoon shows, so I haven't penetrated all its mysteries yet. I am not looking forward to eventually having to get deep into My Little Pony. Jim, of course, was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid because... That was my name. Sort of. Look, I was a dumb kid, and I'm not proud of it. Shut up, Control. <sighs> I can feel Hawkwood laughing at me from whatever torture rack in hell he's found himself on. So, I had the gym segments of the diary unlocked. I skimmed the bits and pieces that I'd read a thousand times, and just as I remembered, there was no mention of any ghoul army, or the process to create a ghoul. At least, well, not in those gym segments. I didn't need the diary for information on what a ghoul is, of course. Ghouls are an undead creation that are bound to the mortal plane. In almost every case, the soul is stripped from the ghoul, then warped, leaving behind a creature that is no longer made in the Imago Dei. And as such, its form becomes malleable to all forms of sinister magic. When an animus creates a ghoul, the form takes on the canine-like appearance and behaves much like the Native American Wendigo. When a necromancer creates a ghoul, the skin turns gray and stretches tight over the bones of the host's body. In all cases, ghouls are primarily carrion eaters. If they are forced to kill their own meals, they will let the corpse age in a dark, dank environment until decay starts to set in. 
every ghoul I've found or read about is exceedingly strong and very resilient to all forms of damage. However, like most creatures of Otra Terre, they fear fire. Therefore, I went to my storage container, where I keep the majority of my weapons and ammunition. Basically, I'd set up a sort of emergency kit that I prepared in case my brother ever escapes confinement. It contains a variety of offensive and defensive weapons and enchantments. It's hard to carry a shotgun around LA, after all, even sawn off. In this case, I wanted the one with the Dragon Breath rounds. Dragon's Breath is basically a shell loaded with magnesium pellets, a more commercially available version of Jack's Brimstone rounds. Still illegal in LA, but, you know, there are some states where you can buy it. These shells burn exceedingly hot when given a spark, and they can shoot concentrated flames up to 100 feet out of the shotgun barrel. Of course, just because I wanted Dragon's Breath, that didn't mean I could actually use it. I was going to be in a cemetery. It had been an especially dry winter in LA, so shooting fire in the middle of what was essentially a dry park would result in a multi-million dollar mass fire, and yeah, not even the Vatican can protect a person from starting a fire in LA during a drought. So I was stuck with regular shotgun rounds. I decided to carry slug rounds to deal more damage per shot. And, since they're a magnesium fire that's easier to control, I picked up some roadside flares, the kinds that can be activated with only one hand. Though I really hope I wouldn't need the flares, since I would have to be far closer to a ghoul than any sane person would choose to be. My shotgun of choice is a Benelli M4, the same shotgun used by the United States Marines and law enforcement. Well, LAPD law enforcement. While there is a civilian version of the same gun, it carries fewer rounds the magazine at a time, and Benelli is adamantly against collapsible stocks for civilian weapons. So, since I need versatility in my line of work, I pulled a few strings and got the same version that the LAPD uses. Its semi-auto rate of fire is part of the reason the M4 is desirable. I wouldn't have to fumble with a pump action to chamber a shell. I'd just have to squeeze the trigger. This matters a great deal to a paranormal Pinkerton, because we are not trained anywhere near as rigorously as the police or military. We don't have the budget for it. Heck, I had to save up several paychecks to even be able to afford this gun, even with the strings I pulled. Anyway, it's a beautiful piece. I stuffed it into a duffel bag. To the seven shells already loaded in the magazine, I only added one extra shell. If I hadn't killed the ghoul with seven slugs, I was likely dead anyway. The extra shell I added was a delayed-action experimental shell that Mercy and I had worked up. Governments around the world have been working for a hundred years to create directed energy weapons. But as far as I know, none of them have experimented with magic to pull off miracles. With a little help from the Verambicio, Mercy and I created what I call a plasma shell. That's basically a slug that, once it penetrates and lodges in an object, directed energy from the visio supercharges the ions present inside the shell, creating hyperactive matter that could, conceivably, melt through solid titanium. I'd never tried that shell on a living, or rather unliving, creature. So, like all my experimental weapons, it's going to be tested in the field. I would take along the soul stone, because I'd need to use it to detect Hawkwood's specific magical fingerprint. Ghouls are not vulnerable to silver, they aren't scared of holy symbols, holy water does nothing to them, and it doesn't matter if you stake them through the heart with wood. They have insanely fast regenerative capabilities, that even the earliest texts written by Muslim scholars can attest to. So the best way to kill them was to do massive damage in one blow, often via decapitation. I am not, however, competent with a sword, or really anything requiring physical dexterity. 
Jack could probably decapitate a ghoul with a steak knife or something. I, however, had to resort to firearms, and, with any luck, put a solid one-ounce slug of lead into the ghoul's skull. I also threw some more experimental magics I'd been working with into the duffel bag. Fulgurite grenades are a unique little item I got from watching the Mythbusters prove that Baghdad batteries were possible. Historically, they were clay pots housing a copper-encased iron rod and a suspension of citric acid, like lemon juice, on the inside. They would generate a minor amount of electricity, easy-peasy. Scholars aren't really sure why these Baghdad batteries exist. Maybe it was to sort of gin up a kind of religious experience when somebody touched a holy object. I have no idea. I did decide to jazz up the original design by using a magically enhanced fulgurite rod as opposed to the one that was copper encased iron. Massive upgrade to the electrical potential. Because of modern enhancements, I was able to shrink the whole thing down to more of a grenade size, make it waterproof, so it could be thrown without the liquid spilling everywhere. However, the build was still made of clay, because when thrown and once shattered, the fulgurite triggers an area of effect taser sensation that should fry the nerves of any moving creature. Once again, should being the operative word. Obviously, I tweaked it a little from its native elements. My final offensive tool came from Hawkwood's diary itself. He discussed a substance harvested from a frost wraith that he called Emir's Tears, and he talked about imprisoning it inside a heat-conducive gelatin. If released, the frost wraith essence would freeze large portions of whatever it touched. Undead creatures were already cooler than room temperature, but this would ensure that they were ice cold. It was surprisingly simple to get frost wraith essence. There's just a black market and magical items here in Los Angeles that really is second to none. As far as defensive capabilities, I have been spending the last few paychecks working on a type of armor that I could consistently use against the forces of Ochoterre. A few years ago, I helped a research scientist at USC by explaining quantum physics, as seen through the lens of the Verambicio. While I don't understand the full implications of what I explained to him, I'm not a quantum mechanic after all, he was apparently quite pleased. He published a paper, it gained him some acclaim, and a big military contract. And as a thank you, beyond paying my fee, he sent me the chemical formula on how to make my own gel-based armor. It utilized some cutting-edge technology, still being researched, that uses non-Newtonian fluids to stop bullets and edged weapons, instead of the traditional Kevlar weave or ceramic metal plates. Kevlar, while lightweight, can still leave dents in the body two or three inches deep, but the non-Newtonian fluid stops impacts at an average of half an inch. Painful, sure, but far less likely to crack a sternum. Plus, it retains its original consistency, thus allowing the armor to be reusable. Kevlar is far less effective after it stops a bullet, but this new combat gel? Reusable, and therefore far more cost-effective. And, of course, because the fluid is non-Newtonian, it is more easily subjected to influence from the Verambicio. This is potentially a security risk if this armor becomes widely used and the forces of Ochoterra become familiar with it. But until then, I can cast spells through it that can give me light, that can protect me against cold or heat, or any one of a dozen different ideas that I'm still testing. For now, however, I was just counting on it to protect me against ghoul claws. This new combat gel is expensive, but I'll trust my life to it. I was also wearing a Rhylite vest, which is basically a high-impact memory foam stuffed into the back of a vest to provide padding in case one takes a bad fall. Stuntmen and motorcycle riders use these so they don't live life in a wheelchair. If it's good enough for them, good enough for me. 
I figured this ghoul case would be a good test for armor. If it works, I'll make Jack and Sean a version that they can spruce up according to their own needs. I waited until 9pm, a few hours past nightfall. I drove to Riverside, parked, and waited. I listened to some podcasts talking about alien abductions. <laughs> always a guilty pleasure of mine, since paranormal Pinkertons are always getting called out on alien hoaxes. I had the soul stone on hand so that I could see if I was picking up any harmonic resonance with the necromantic energy that fuels ghouls. I waited all night. Nothing. That was Monday night. During the day, I slept like the dead. Okay, bad metaphor in this case. I waited at the cemetery again on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. By the time Friday rolled around, I was exhausted from the mangled sleep schedule. It's hard to sleep during the day in LA when you don't have a soundproofed apartment. You can hear all the construction and traffic and sirens blaring 24-7. I know some people get used to it and adapt, but I've never been a quick adapter at anything. Friday night, 9pm, parked on the street again. I picked up a Costco-sized box of 5-hour energies and have been slamming them ever since I woke up at 6. I may have been awake, but I was as jittery as a tweaker coming off a bench. Finally, about 1am, the soul stone started glowing. While still in my car, I used the soul stone to enhance my night vision to make things seem a little less dark. I couldn't see the ghoul, so I stepped out of my vehicle, put on a light jacket, and got the shotgun out of the duffel bag in my trunk and pulled on a fanny pack with a couple of the Fulgurite grenades and Emir's tears. The shotgun had an extra shell carrier on the butt of the gun, so I placed my single plasma shell in that slot. Once again, if I burned through the seven already in the gun, I'd probably only have time for one more shot before the ghoul ripped me to shreds. I'm not an expert at glamours or making objects invisible to the naked eye, and my ability to control the Varum Visio was definitely not 100% with all the energy drinks I've been drinking so I only managed to make the shotgun in my hand appear a little darker than it normally would. It wouldn't hold up if some guard hit me with a flashlight, but it would make it harder for the average observer to see me walking around with a gun, and that could be the difference between someone assuming I was a harmless prank to ignore, or a grave robber worth calling the police over. Cemeteries carry a special spookiness at night. Everyone knows that. Most people brush it off as superstition, or the residual nonsense fears of childhood. Some of us, though, know that the dark really is something to be afraid of, because we know what lurks there, and we arm ourselves accordingly. That said, it really was very dark. Across the street from the Hollywood Hills version of Forest Lawn stands the Warner Brothers studio lot. You can just barely see the famous water tower from the cemetery, and if you're lucky, you'll spot Yakko, Wacko, and Dot escape their watery prison. So, I let the shotgun dangle from my right hand. Even with its mild cloaking, I didn't need to walk down the road with my hands looking like I was cradling a gun. That's an unmistakable silhouette. There was a chain-link fence with barbed wire, but a few hundred yards later, the chain-link turns to iron-wrought rods, and there's no more barbed wire on these. I had to wait for a car to pass me, but then I slipped my shotgun through the fence and struggled over the fence. I need to start working out more. I saw a car approaching, so I laid down so it wouldn't be as easily picked up by the headlights. The car passed on by. I slipped the soul stone into my jacket's inner breast pocket. I didn't want the glowing light to give me away, but I did need it on hand, just in case. The graveyard was eerie at night. I was lucky as a full moon. Well, maybe not lucky, since the ghoul had obviously waited a few days between feedings. Who knows, maybe full moons make corpses taste fresher. All of my senses were on alert, 
as I walked the grassy stretch from the road. Even with the light from the moon and the general luminescent ambience of LA nightlife, it was dark and I was tired. Even with 40 ounces of energy drink coursing through my veins, I was pretty sure I could have fallen asleep with little to no effort. Once I got out of sight of the road, I dropped the glamour on the shotgun and began moving with it in a low ready position. I needed to be careful because A, ghouls can see at night, and B, there were jutting gravestones and grave markers scattered all over the place. It wouldn't be hard to twist an ankle, even at a walking pace, if I were incautious. Still, I walked onward, keeping an eye for any moving shapes, any walking flashlights that might indicate a guard, and I kept the other eye on the soul stone to see if it would get brighter as I got closer to the creature. Fortunately, it did seem to get brighter. Unfortunately, it started humming a little as the harmonic resonance between the soul stone and the ghoul increased. I tried jiggling the soul stone in a futile effort to quiet it. Obviously, shaking it did nothing. I'm not familiar enough with the soul stone to know if there is a way to silence it using a visio. I obviously hadn't deciphered that part of Hawkwood's diary. I wasn't going to fully slip into the Verum visio to figure out how to silence it from the inside out. Really, seeing a cemetery is a bad idea, no matter how consecrated it is. I was distracted by the noise coming from the soul stone, so it took me a few seconds to notice the beam of light walking my way. It was still playing out on the ground, so the security guard must not have heard the soul stone yet. Even at night, there is still a pretty constant susurrus of traffic in LA. There is no such thing as totally silent, much like there is no such thing as pitch black. LA defies the loss of God and nature yet again. It looked like the security guard was walking towards the fence where I came in, and away from the heart of the cemetery proper. So I circled wide around him and walked up the hill, following the soul stone's ever-increasing hum and brightness. I came to a dark grotto that was separated from other parts of the cemetery by a wall of trees. In this area were several small mausoleums, some statues, and the overpowering smell of rotten flesh. I heard the sound of furious digging, almost frantic. I still couldn't see anything, so I slowly reached out with my left hand to pull the flare out of my fanny pack. I eased around the corner of the mausoleum, and I saw it. Two thin limbs stuck out of a withered torso, looking like Paris Hilton during her skinnier years. But even Hilton couldn't match the diseased, slimy ooze that covered every square inch of its gangrenous flesh. I watched as it crawled out of a grave it had been desecrating, dragging behind it a corpse in a nice suit. I watched as the creature cracked open the skull of the deceased man with its two strong hands, but I was too far away to watch it actually feast on the brains. I did, however, hear the sickly slurping noises, like a child hungrily eating soup. Suddenly, the noise stopped, and I heard a low, guttural voice grunt out, <clears throat> Master. I saw the monster sniffing the air. I readied the shotgun, aiming it at its head. The voice spoke again, sounding like rocks being processed by a garbage disposal. A British garbage disposal. No, not master. You don't smell right. Suddenly, a sickly, bald green head, half devoid of flesh, turned and looked right at me. I could see part of his skull was missing, like someone had already shot it once, and its brains were barely holding it in place. 
Who are you? A smart ghoul. Great. Would have preferred if it was just a mindless killing machine. I am Jim Donovan. The Vatican has tasked me to discover who has been disturbing the graves in this park. The ghoul took a deep, satisfied sigh. Ah, Donovan. I know this name. Master often spoke of a Donovan who was like me. Yeah, that's my brother. Ah, good. He is blessed, then. You, you have a stone like Master did. No, you have Master's stone. He is dead, yes. Unless he found a way to cheat death that I'm not aware of. I tightened my grip on the shotgun and held the flare in my left hand ready to strike, just in case. I needn't have worried. The ghoul laughed, a disturbingly high-pitched tittering. <laughs> no. If he had crossed the veil, I would have felt him. It would mean he had become the lich he was always striving to be. This was news to me. Not only was Hawkwood the most powerful mortal necromancer in the Western Hemisphere. He was trying to break through death itself. I tried to reason with him. If you come with me, I'll see to it that... And he jumped at me, catching me flat-footed, and distracted me by my attempt to make a plea to what was once his humanity. As he closed the gap, a full forty feet, jumped in the span of a heartbeat, I fired a slug, catching him in his right shoulder. That threw him off balance enough so that he tripped on his feet right before he reached me and skidded past me. He rebounded quickly enough and spun up on me, his left arm grabbing my right shoulder, preparing to rip it out of the socket. I saw the wound that I had caused his right shoulder and that it was rapidly healing, the sick, necromantic energy binding him together, re-knitting his body so that it could keep fighting. He might have skipped meals, but he was still well-fed. Rather than try to keep shooting him, I ignited a flare with my left hand and jabbed it up into his milky white eyes. He screamed louder than any living creature would be capable of. The living are bound by the constraints of their physical vocal cords, but the undead routinely power their muscles and autonomic systems using the same chemical concoction that average mortals use in moments of immense duress. Like mothers lifting cars off their children, his claws ripped flesh out of my upper arm as he let me go and slapped his hands over his eyes. Fire hinders and slows ghoul regeneration, so I'd probably have a bit of time before he could see again. That did not mean I was safe, though, because I was bleeding profusely from my upper arm, and ghouls have excellent senses of smell. I should have brought along an ozone filter, like hunters used to prevent deer from smelling them. It didn't matter. I was hurting. The claws had dug deep into my shoulder, and it felt like they had messed up some muscles because I had difficulty gripping the gun with my right arm. I ran away to get some time to lick my wounds, because the ghoul can kill by closing distance. I kill by creating it. It wasn't long before the howling of the ghoul turned into a frenzied, Where, Donovan? Where are you? I kept turning my head over my shoulder as I ran, and tried to put as many gravestones as possible between it and me. It inhaled deep, 
smelling the wind, and began running like a wolf runs. Or, not so much like a wolf, but on its hands and feet, with the arms shooting out to pull itself forward, kind of akin to how monkeys run. As it strode through the graveyard, it kept running into gravestones, the bigger ones knocking it off balance, while the smaller ones were crushed by its forward momentum. I pulled out one of the clay pots from my fanny pack. I hated the idea of throwing with my left hand, but my right was too badly mangled from the claws. I couldn't even manage a girly throw in my current state. Fortunately, it was an area-of-effect weapon, and like my dad always used to say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. The pot shattered off a tombstone it had just pushed its way through, and the water splashed over everything, including the ghoul, and the fulgurite shattered. Fulgurite is a unique rock formation that occurs when lightning strikes sand and instantly melts the sand, creating a kind of primitive glass structure. I managed to find one that retained just enough of its electric nature to trigger a raging electric storm that, had I been in a more forested part of the graveyard, would surely have violated my anti-fire precautions. The ghoul let out another otherworldly shriek as its limbs started twitching in spastic motions, looking like that one prisoner in the botched execution in the Green Mile. The slime that coated its body acted as a conductor for all the electricity to play along his whole rotting carcass. I began shooting at it while it was still twitching. My first shot went wide to the left and clipped a tombstone. My second shot hit the ghoul's torso, right above where the liver would be. The impact sounded like slapping a slab of meat with a sledgehammer. Black ooze leaked out of the wound, but it began healing as soon as I had inflicted the wound. It was on the ground, not moving of its own volition, so I should have been able to get a good beat on its head, but I was still having trouble aiming with my bad arm. I didn't want to get closer, and instead chose to back up, since I wasn't doing enough damage to override its regenerative capabilities and put it down for good. I pulled out Emir's tears from the fanny pack and muttered in an incantation, slipping a thread from the soul stone in my pocket to the little gelatin ball, and I set it on the ground. I had told it to wait five seconds, and then to unleash itself the next time it felt an impact nearby. I wouldn't have to wait long, as the fulgurite grenade didn't keep the ghoul down long. It lumbered back up and began loping in my direction again, following the smell. I noticed that while the eyes were still burned out, the wound on its shoulder had almost totally healed, and the stomach wound seemed half as large as it had been. It didn't just disturb the gelatin ball that held the frost wraith essence. It flat out stomped on it. The frost wraith erupted from its little prison and sucked the heat out of everything in a 20-foot radius, coating everything in thick frost. I watched as the slime on its skin flash froze. It moved more sluggishly, but I hadn't counted on necrotic magic not being totally countered by frostbite, the same way that living tissue would have been. It may have slowed, by 20 or 25%, but it was still far faster than I was, especially wounded. It lumbered towards me again. I fired again and again. I had gotten used to the deleterious effects my bad arm had on my aim and figured out how to compensate. Slug after slug thudded into the body. I watched as I blew off its left arm, two slugs having landed in close proximity to each other. And just like that, I was out of ammo. The ghoul looked at his arm, or where it used to be. I could see by now that the healing factor was finally starting to work on its eyes. And then it looked back at me. It could see me fumbling with my last shell, my plasma shell, it stalked toward me, confident. 
the shell slipped into the receiver slot, and I brought the shotgun up to aim just as it got to me. I fired the slug right into its left eye. It stayed inside. No explosion where its head used to be. The ghoul laughed. It picked me up with its good arm and held me close to its face. I could smell the embalming fluid from the corpse it had been eating. It said, Close, Donovan, but not close enough. And with a mighty exertion, it hurled me through the air and through a mausoleum wall that had been nearby. If this had been any other graveyard in any other city, that mausoleum would have been made of marble or granite, and my body would have been broken. Instead, this being Los Angeles, is made of brittle stucco, and I sailed right through that wall. Fake memorial for a fake city. It still might have crushed me if the Rhyolite armor hadn't absorbed most of the impact on my back. I groaned and tried to regain my feet. The ghoul, exasperated, said, What must I do to kill? And it stopped right then because the time-delayed plasma shell that had shot into its skull had finally started working. I'm going to have to tweak it to make it work faster in the future. Plasma is a state of matter, like solid, liquid, or gas, that burns incredibly hot. It is the stuff that makes up the stars. So in essence, I had started the process of creating a star in the center of the ghoul's head. And once that warmed up, it burned his skull from the inside out faster than if I had dunked it in lava. The eyes glowed like lighthouse beacons, and its nose and mouth roared like furnaces. It didn't have time to feel pain. One second, it was standing confused. The next second, it was dead again. This time, sands ahead. The plasma charge kept burning. The shell had tumbled out of its skull. I was laying on some grave marker for what was probably a minor Hollywood celebrity, burning through the small shrine of a dead actor. I slowly picked up my cell phone from my pocket and dialed up Father Smith. Mission accomplished. I croaked. I told him he'd have to get his team up here fast to clean up the scene before the LAPD got here. I also arranged for an exfiltration, since I knew the graveyard would be swarming with police and I was in no state to get away. While I waited for Vatican warrior priests to arrive, I looked at the burned husk I'd just created. This was what my brother could become, if he ever escaped, if I couldn't find a cure for him. I took a syringe out of my fanny pack and withdrew what I could of the ghoul's thick black blood. I stored the vial in my pocket. Helicopters, quieter than any that I'd ever heard before, descended on the graveyard. Apparently teams had been on the ready, waiting for the father to activate them. One helicopter landed, and monks poured out, swarming the cemetery. The other helicopter looked more like a medevac, and indeed, that's what it was. Delirious, in pain, I told them where my car was, and I blacked out in the helicopter. I came to in some sort of safe house that I guess the Vatican keeps for just such purposes. My arm had been cleaned and bandaged. I'd also apparently picked up some long, thin cut to my abdomen that I guess the armor hadn't fully protected me from. I didn't even remember it slashing me, but <laughs> I was just glad it hadn't succeeded. My gear was lying nearby, including the soul stone. There was a little note on top of my equipment. I read it. Mr. Donovan, good work. We will let you keep these weapons of yours, because we know you do God's work. But, 
Do not think we cannot come for you, should your allegiances change. Father Smith. There was a postscript at the bottom. We brought in a sister of mercy to tend to your wounds, and she managed to work a minor miracle for you. You will not suffer any permanent damage from your injuries, but other than that, you will go through the normal healing process. As our Lord repays every good work, so too does his church. I set the note down and began recording all this on my phone. Jack, Sean, I know you're listening to these. You guys may be the only ones who do listen to these. I think I should be fine to travel in a day or two. I'm sore. But Jack, your message sounded pretty urgent. I'll see you guys in the Ozark when the right codes come. Until then, this is Jim Donovan. Over and out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio and licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Ken Dickison, who also performed the audio editing. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SuperversiveSF.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, including on Authorized TV, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts. Support us on Patreon or email us at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.